You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. We are in Hebrews today. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you're, you're welcome to go in the back. We just updated our stock with, with uh, some Bibles that aren't seven-point font, that, that are impossible to read. Uh, the economy Bibles are a great allure for like $2, but they are almost unreadable by many standards. And so we're in Hebrews chapter 11 today. That's like three-fourths of the way through your Bible. 11 is the big number. 23 or 22 is, is the, little, the little number. Uh, we'll also put these verses on the screen. It's a good practice for you, if you don't already, to bring your Bibles uh, to our service or have a Bible in front of you. We, we have committed ourselves to kind of going through the Word to try to understand it. And it's always good for you to get your eyes on Scripture so you don't think that I'm just up here making things up based upon my own authority and my interpretation. But these are actually things that are in the inspired and authoritative Word of God. And so if you, if you don't have one, like I said, you're feel, feel free to take one. It's yours um, to have. And so if you're new here or just rejoining us after a period of some time off, we've been in the book of Hebrews, this New Testament letter. We've been in this letter for five months now. It doesn't seem to be that long, uh, but it's been five months. And we're, we're trying to do our best to figure out verse by verse why this book was written, who it was written for and what this letter means for us today. And so this letter was written some 30 years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. The manuscript evidence that we have today points us to understanding this letter was written somewhere around 65 AD, and it was written to a group of Jewish believers in that day that were settled in the area around Rome. And we're not sure necessarily who wrote it, uh, some think it's the author is uh, the, the Apostle Paul who writes so much of the New Testament. Some believe it's Barnabas. Others think it's a guy named Apollos. But the, the context of this book and the text itself actually seems to, to point us to somebody who's a little bit less known in the modern world. In chapter 2, it says that the writer of this letter was somebody who didn't see Jesus firsthand, who, who didn't experience any of the works you know, the miracles of Jesus, that this writer was one who came to faith by hearing of the word of God about Jesus. And so into that sense, he is like you and I of hearing the word of God and coming to faith and belief in, in, in Jesus. And so, so in many ways, this letter actually reads as, as, a, as a faithful and loving pastor writing to this little local congregation. It's very pastoral by nature. And that congregation has, as we remember, endured quite a bit of difficulty in, in their day. As faithful to Christ, there are not many places that they fit into amongst the culture in that day. Now, if they remained orthodox in their Judaism, they would have found a measure of celebration and acceptance. If they were even godless or heathen or <laughs> didn't believe in anything, or they would have found a seat at the table. And even if they were willing to profess Jesus as 
God, but not a big God, but as a little g God, one of many gods, they would have found a measure of celebration in that day. But because they profess Jesus to be the Christ, the Son, one of God, one of the three in the Godhead, they have found rejection and they've been cut off and they are persecuted. And so it's a great challenge in that day. And I, I just love this. I just see this guy as a pastor, and he has wrote uh, to this church, and he has been up to the task at almost every single way. He's thoroughly and brilliantly, I think, he has brilliantly contended to this little church the rock-solid evidence of Jesus and his better covenant. And at the same time, he has gracefully and diligently answered all the pressing questions that those in that day would have. Those who are skeptics and even new believers that were coming into the church that once were, were Jewish by faith. He has answered questions about the death of Jesus, the necessity of that death, why the death was so brutal. He He's even answered questions on why it was necessary for God himself to come into the flesh, questions on why there was a different priesthood that was needed, a different sacrifice, a better covenant. And then most recently here, as we've walked through chapter 11, our author has contended that not only was faith um, necessary and had a role in the Old Testament, uh, but it was the only thing that matters. He says in defining faith, that faith is the substance of what we hope for, the evidence of things unseen. And what he is saying is that faith isn't a feeling, that faith is not wishful thinking, but it's a wise and reasonable trust in the character of promises and the word of God. And we have great evidence to do so. And what seems to be behind the discussion of faith here in chapter 11 is that there are some in that day who are contending that the teachings of Jesus that talk about faith are actually a different and newer teaching than what would be found in the old covenant, that faith is a new thing. And so our author has skillfully laid out that faith isn't new at all. In fact, it was faith through grace that has always made people righteous before God. And he reminds us of Abraham, the, the patriarch of the Masonic line of God's people. And he says that the scripture reminds us of this, that Abraham was counted righteous, not because of his works, but because of faith. And then in chapter 11, he goes on and he presents to his readers the faith of all of these Old Testament saints. Now, these would have been people, if, if they had posters in that day, they would have had these posters hanging up in their room, people like Enoch and Isaac and Jacob. And he goes on and he, he tells them of, of these people that they've idolized since they were boyhood or, or, or in childhood. Uh, that they were not a people that possessed a greater degree of leadership or skill or talent or even a greater um, presence with the Lord, but they were, they were people who just simply trusted in the promises of God by faith that were resolved to do the will of God on earth in their life. And it wasn't their faith that made, it wasn't, it wasn't their faith in God that made them great, or I should say this. It wasn't their skill that made them great. It was their faith in God that made him great. 
They persevered because they trusted in one who was greater than them. And so we learned about Abel and his sacrifice, that it was deemed acceptable to God by faith. We learned about Enoch, that he was pleasing to God by faith. We learned about Noah in this chapter, that, that he stood firm in a world that condemned and mocked him by his faith and his trust in God. And then we learned last week about people like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And we learned that they persevered, not knowing where God was going to take them or how God was going to do what he told them he was going to do or why God even acted or allowed the things to happen in their lives or when God would bring the reward. They all had faith despite it. And all of them died in that faith, never receiving the promises that God had contended to them in that life. And last week, we, we said that the author is hinting here that none of these Old Testament saints expected those promises to be fulfilled in their lifetime, that all of them understood that those promises would be known in the restored kingdom that God had promised through the Son, through the Messiah, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And so today, our author turns his sight on one who is probably seen as the greatest among all the Israelites, a man named Moses. And Moses is synonymous for the law of God. The law of God was given through Moses. And today, even in our modern context, we might refer to God's law as the Mosaic law. And so at this point in history, when this letter was written, the faith of the Jew would be very legalistic. In that day, there were a great number of laws, hundreds of laws that God's people were required to keep and obey. And there were laws that were made up to simply keep you from breaking other laws. And so it would be kind of like somebody saying to you, hey, the, the speed limit that you're supposed to drive at is 70 miles an hour. We believe that to be the maximum speed for somebody to drive without it becoming too dangerous. But then some day later, there's legislation that's passed and someone says that, hey, what we need to do is we gotta put a governor on all the engines that have ever been created to allow cars to only go 65 miles an hour because we don't want people to get too close to going 70 miles an hour because if they go over that, it might get too dangerous. This is kind of what is happening in that day. In the first century, it's very legalistic. And who would have the people of that day associated with that legalism? Well, the deliverer of the law, Moses. And so it's a bit surprising and it's a bit scandalous in that day that the author here in Hebrews 11 roots Moses to faith and to not, not to the law. And what we will find in this chapter, in these passages, the theme of our time together today is a faith that goes beyond, a faith that goes beyond our abilities, a faith that goes beyond our understanding, beyond our circumstances, and even beyond ourselves. And it goes beyond us towards what the author writes here at the end of this chapter, towards something better that God has promised us. And we'll talk about what that is. But let's pray, and we'll jump into our text. Father, we come before you today, and we're grateful for this word, that we can have it, Lord, and possess it is the envy of many in this world. And so, Lord, will you use your word by your spirit? Will you make these words come alive? Lord, forgive us of our sins. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and the plan of salvation. Lord, bring to us conviction and joy in our life today. 
We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11 here, starting in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And so there are four acts of faith that are associated with Moses in here. The first is actually the faith of his parents, Amram and Jacobet. They lived in slavery in Egypt at that time. All the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt at that time. And the ruler of Egypt was called the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh was not a good person, but the Pharaoh had a very significant problem. These Hebrews who he had enslaved would not go away, and they were becoming too powerful. They weren't becoming powerful because of their politics or their influence. They were becoming powerful because of their number. And the more that Pharaoh tried to oppress them, it seemed, and it says in scriptures, that the more they began to multiply. And so eventually the Pharaoh tells the midwives in that day to kill all of the male babies born to the Israelites. And in an act of defiance, the midwives refused to do so, which only made the Pharaoh more angry which led to him making a decree to all of his people to kill any son born to an Israelite. Said it to everyone in that time. That's the king's command. And it is in that time that Moses is born. And it seems at his birth that there is something remarkable about Moses. Now, the word says that he's beautiful. Now, doesn't every one of us who have had a child think that their child is the most beautiful child that's ever existed? Right? That's not true. Asa is. Right? Right? <laughs> it's just not true. Okay, just kidding. So it, it, he's, he's not talking about a beauty that comes from the outside here. When he notices the beautiful nature of Moses, what do we know about God and his word? It says that the Lord doesn't see outward appearances like you and I, but he looks at our hearts, right? We remember in the scripture, Samuel the prophet looking for the next king of the nation of Israel. He goes to a man named Jesse and he asks to see his sons. And, and Jesse brings out seven of his sons and one by one they pass by Samuel and no, stronger, wiser, more attractive men were they, but eventually they come to David, who was not called by his father, this young, weak shepherd in the field, and Samuel says, this is the guy. And so we know that this isn't about outward appearance, but there is something supernatural about David. Not a, not a glowing, not a shining, but there's something about David that his mom and dad know that he is destined for great things. And so what do they do? They hide him 
they hide him in this day, knowing that he has got a job to do. And then they devise a plan to send baby Moses down the Nile River on a basket, knowing there would be a bathing party of Egyptians somewhere down the stream. And in that bathing party was the Pharaoh's daughter. And just like they maybe had hoped for it to happen, baby Moses floats right to Pharaoh's daughter. She has pity on him and she makes him her son. She takes takes him in. And then seemingly being a great big sister, here comes Miriam, probably had peeking through the weeds the whole time, sees the daughter of the Pharaoh taking Moses and pops up and says, hey, do you want one of the Hebrews to care for this child, nurse this child. And she says, yes. And so what does Miriam do? She takes Moses back to her, his mother. And there Moses grows up, not in condemnation, needing to be killed because he's a Hebrew child, but by the command of Pharaoh's daughter. He grows up with his mom and dad. And in that home, we see that the seeds of faith were planted in the home, that, that, that Moses in his time with his mom and dad would have told, been told about the great faithfulness of God, would have been told the story of the people, their journey, and all that they had hoped for. They would have been faithful in pursuing Moses and making him understand who their God was. And then after he spends a season at home, and many think it's maybe 12 years that Moses is living with his parents, he goes and he lives in the palace with the Pharaoh. And notice how the seeds of the faith that his mom and dad sowed at him took root in his time there. Because it says that he did not want to be associated with the people of Egypt. He didn't want to be known as an Egyptian. He wanted to be known as the people of God. He wanted to be identified with his Hebrew brothers and sisters. Now, that is an amazing thing. He refuses to be identified as a, as a people that would have been the superpower of the day. Like they had enormous wealth flourishing land. The Egyptians were a powerful nation, but by faith, Moses rejected it all. Now consider how incredible that is, that every one of us in our lives, in some way or fashion, whether we do now or will in the future, we have pursued or chased after an easier life, a life of comfort, a life of greater privilege, a life of greater finance and wealth and and pleasure. Egypt being the superpower of the day had everything that we could ever hope for in this world. Great power, great wealth, but Moses rejected it all. Think of the choice here. Think of the choice that he's faced. Moses would have been the second in command in all of Egypt, a very powerful nation. There would have been no chasing prosperity like you and I. He had it. And by faith, he chose Different, not knowing what would happen, but trusting that God was better. And what does it say that Moses was considering as he made these choices? In verse 26, it says that he was considering the reproach of Christ. Now, that's interesting in two different ways. One, it's interesting because in his faith to reject 
the, the Egyptian wealth and prosperity, he is believing in a reward that far exceeds any reward that he will have on earth. Through Christ, he believes that he will have a greater reward someday. Secondly, it's remarkable because of the connection here to Moses. Christ and Moses are connected to one another. Moses yearned by faith for the promised one that we know by faith today as our Lord and Savior. Now, Moses would by faith not have lived in fear of the powers of that day. It says that he walked away from the king even though he was angry, trusting God and his word and his decrees. And by that same faith, he called his people, God's people, to sacrifice a very precious animal in that day, an animal that would have provided for those slaves in that day a great deal of substance. He told the people of Israel to take a lamb and sacrifice it and smear the blood of that lamb on their doorpost and over their door as the plague of God's, uh, God's last plague, the death of the firstborn son was about to play out. The blood was to prevent any of that plague from befalling on any of the Israelites. That plague would pass over the houses that were covered by blood. And so this is where the term Passover comes from. Moses has a faith that obeys. He has a faith that obeys. Such a difficult command to understand. Nobody would have been familiar with a spotless lamb and sacrificing and smearing blood. He trusted God with simple obedience. And let's extend our understanding of of the remarkable ways that God acts when we choose to trust him by faith, as we look at verse 29 here. He says this, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, as many, as, as we do many, many times in our life, uh, it is true of the people in this day. We tend to look at our works and we tend to elevate the works of people over the works of God. We, we, we see people, we look at, look at their courage, look at their resolve. We do the same thing in scripture. We say, look at these people, look at what they did, look at the courageousness of their actions. And, and we sort of build ourselves up to be like these people in their actions. But these Three verses, these three examples, gracefully remind us of our flaw as humans. The author reminds us that his people were full of faith when they crossed the Red Sea. And we might look at that and say, well, it was because of their courage to step on dry land and come apart from these, these walls of water and walk across this dry land to the other side. They were very courageous people. But then he reminds us, look, look. Who else crossed over that dry land? The Egyptians, who were equally as courageous. And what happened? They drowned. And what he's reminding us is that it was by faith that they crossed the Red Sea. They walked believing that God would deliver them. And then they, looked at, they look at the walls of Jericho, he says. It wasn't a testament to our abilities and our might It wasn't a testament to the strength of God's army. These people arrived after walking through the Red Sea. 
They, they arrived in a land and it was given to them by God and they were told to take this land uh, in a city called Jericho. And they waited outside of this castle, if you want to put it that way, and they waited there by faith for God to do something. They waited for seven days and they walked around this city for seven days and on the seventh day they blew a horn and everything crumbled. And the reason that's here is he doesn't want his people to see these Old Testament saints and think, look at what they did, look at the faith that they had, look at the way that they were strong and courageous. He said, look, look, look at this. Look how they waited. Look how patient they were. Look how much they anticipated what God was going to do for them. And then he mentions Rahab to remind this little congregation that it's not about perfection. It's not about perfection that makes us commended by faith. It is by faith alone. Rahab was not even a Jew. She was a Canaanite, worshiping Canaanite gods. And she heard of the mighty works of God as the nation of Israel moved towards her land. And she looked past the strength of the armies of God to God himself. And through simple fear, she trusted in God by faith. And she hid the spies that came into the land to guide the nation of Israel. And on top of that, she was a harlot. She was a prostitute. And by faith, she gave that up, trusting God. Her faith was about simple fear and reverence of God. Not about perfection. It was about faith. And then he goes on in verse 32 to say this. He says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and, and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, uh, uh, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered, mocked, mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now, do you know that sometimes in your discussion or your argument with somebody, they may say to you, well, no, everybody's talking about it. You need to understand that everybody's talking. They're all saying this, but what it ends up being is it, it's only a big deal to them and maybe one person. But dramatically, we've increased the size of our argument by saying everybody's saying this. No, it's just you and maybe your friend. This is not what the author is doing here. He's not saying there are so many examples that I could tell you about the faith of the Old Testament. I just don't have time for those things. As if he's trying to increase his argument to convince these people of his point. No, he, he's not saying that because of it. He is saying, I, I don't have time, but I have lots of evidence. And he goes on to talk about all of, all of the people, Gideon, Barak, Samson, David, Samuel, all of these people that he doesn't have time to talk about. And what is he trying to do? What is the point here? He's commending to the people that every person and work they have ever known in the Old Testament 
isn't a story about the greatness of God's people. It is the story of the greatness of God working through a people who trust him by simple faith. And he writes of God's people having great triumphs in their life. People who have conquered other kingdoms, who escaped death, who are mighty in battle. People who received the dead back. People who were escaped the edges of of the sword, who were strong out of weaknesses, of people like Daniel who survived in the lion's den. Yet he also mentions those who lost their lives, hoping in faith and the promises of God. Those who are mocked and stoned and destitute and mistreated. And of these people, of these mistreated people, he speaks of this, not the people of victory, but the people who are mistreated and stoned, he says that these are a people whom the world is not worthy of. Man, their humble faith in the midst of hardship and loss was more of a testimony to the faithfulness of God than all of those great victories and wonders. Leon Morris, who's a theologian, he says this, that the despised and ill-treated group of servants of God was of greater real worth than all of the rest of humanity put together. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemaker. These are the words of Jesus himself. The world is blessed by lowly people with great faith and hope in God. And so what we see here is a people who both triumph over the circumstances of their life in the world, but also of a people whose circumstances triumphed over them. And what he is elevating in this teaching is that it's not a matter of worldly circumstance. It's a matter of faith. And that faith goes beyond our rationale. It goes beyond our understanding. It goes beyond our abilities. That trust that we trust in something better by faith. And then he closes this way. He says in verse 39, And all these, though commended through faith, their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And what he is saying here is even if these people didn't receive the measure of reward or prosperity or blessing on this earth, they never received what was promised in their lifetime. There was something better they had their eyes on. And what did they have their eyes on? It was Jesus. Jesus is what God provided as the better thing for us, a better prophet, a better priest, a better king with better, a better sacrifice, a better covenant and better promises. All of the Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming realities of Christ, which we dwell with today. Isn't it wonderful here at the end of this chapter that the author says us, He says us, and he's not talking about the audience of that day. He's talking about us, those who trust in Christ. Together with all of the Old Testament saints and these people in this day, we are being made perfect 
Not through determination or effort, but through faith in Christ. We are being conformed into the image of the Son to do the will of God on earth. F.B. Myers, a theologian and commentary writer, says this. He says, this chapter proves that the saints of all ages are essentially one. There is a link which unites them, a thrill which passes from one hand to to hand around the circle. And what is that thrill? It's knowing Jesus Christ by faith through grace, knowing the person and the work of Jesus who has done the work of salvation for us, that we might rest in his promises, that we might rest in his character, that we live by faith in every moment. That as we rest by faith in Christ, believing that he is a God that rewards us, that we can choose in this moment to do what is right, not by the standard of the world or our culture, but to stand firm by faith to do what is right in the eyes of God in his word and decrees. Not right as we interpret God's word and decree, but right as God has revealed them to us. That we, by rest through faith in Christ, can reject power and influence and wealth in this day, all the pleasures of sin that might come from living by another ethic that compromises our faith, that we can trust that God will reward those who walk faithfully with him, that we can rest by faith in Christ, that we can simply obey God as he calls to us in our lives even when it doesn't make sense as Moses was called to take a lamb and cut its throat open and smear some blood that every situation we can live by faith to love our God with all of our heart, soul, strength and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves despite the cost despite how we might look knowing that God rewards our obedience and as we rest by faith in Christ we know that living isn't a matter of courage as we see in the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. It isn't a matter of ability or leadership as we see are those who rest by faith in the work of God around the walls of Jericho with great anticipation for what God might do. It isn't about perfection or status as we see in the person of Rahab, but a faith that comes through simple fear and knowledge and reverence of God. That no matter the circumstances of life, whether those circumstances triumph over us or we triumph over those circumstances, that God is faithful and he rewards those who persevere by faith. And so what we're reminded of here in chapter 11 is that, that we get to see the people in the Bible not through edifying their greater works, but through faith, that we yearn to exemplify their kind of faith, but we understand they're not better than you and I. They're not more skilled than you and I. They, they don't have a different measure of God than you and I have through Christ. They are simple people who are faithful to God to do what he called them to do. They're not better than us. They are like us. And together we are being conformed into the image of the Son by faith. That we can only in this life live by faith. That the world would see God in me 
and not others. Chapter 11 is a beautiful, I wish we could spend more time in chapter 11, a beautiful understanding of what God's people are called to by faith.